Well, let me, uh, if I may, encourage you to turn your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 12, the second of those two readings that Dave read for us just earlier. Page 1,210 is the page number. If you have a church Bible, I think it will help you uh, to follow along to see why I'm saying what I'm saying. Hebrews chapter 12, page 1,210. And you might also uh, find it useful to dig out um, uh, the handout, the sermon outline that I've uh, dropped into the... uh, Uh, the notice sheet and the service order, uh, just so you can see where we're going in the next few moments. If you're uh, here for the first time uh, or haven't been for a while, uh, you uh, need to know that we're at the end of a series of sermons uh, looking at the big question of suffering. So this is week five of five, um, and uh, uh, so this week we look at discipline through suffering. Uh, It was about a year or so ago that someone said to me on the telephone, I feel as if God is punishing me. Uh, She was going through a hard time, uh, suffering depression. Her marriage was in a bad way. Her career had come to a juddering halt. And as she looked at her life, she could only interpret her suffering as God's punishment upon her. That is, as God's retributive punishment upon her, as if God were angry at her. A few days later, I found myself speaking to somebody who was struggling with bad health and she said, how can this be happening to me? I'm a child of God. Why is God allowing this to happen to me? These two conversations were just a few days apart and yet I heard two responses to suffering that appeared to be poles apart. I'm suffering because God is angry at me and I shouldn't be suffering because I'm a child of God. They seem to be so different, and yet as I thought about them, I realised that at the heart of both comments was actually the same misunderstanding. Both women misunderstood what it meant to be a child of God and under the fatherly care of our Heavenly Father. Uh, This morning, as we come to the end of our series on suffering, we consider how God uses hardship to discipline his children. Uh, Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 then and see uh, as we read through these verses how again and again in these verses God is um, described, is seen as, is indeed, is not just described as but is a loving heavenly father who disciplines us as a good and loving father disciplines his children. You can't miss it through the passage. Look at verse 5. Have you forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Verse 6, the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? Verse 8, if you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Verse 9, We've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respect them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? And verse 10, our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Six verses then explaining that the Lord is a father who disciplines his children. Now it is this aspect of God's fatherly goodness Uh, to quote Don Carson, that is too little thought about by most Christians in the Western world where discipline is frequently in short supply and not least in the church. Uh, John Piper makes exactly the same point in uh, this book, A Godward Life. There is an imbalance of emphasis on the Father's forgiving tenderness 
to the exclusion of the father's forgiving toughness. See, neglecting this this disciplining aspect of God's fatherly care has catastrophic pastoral effect. For when suffering strikes, we don't have this category in our theological locker room to help us respond in a godly way to the hardships that come upon us. And that's why both these women I spoke to last year were all at sea when they suffered. One had concluded that God was angry with her. She didn't see God as a loving Heavenly Father. She couldn't see the difference between the wrath of God and the loving discipline of her Heavenly Father. The other one knew she was a child of God, but her view of God was not as a loving Heavenly Father, although she thought it was, but as a sugar daddy who shouldn't be allowed to do anything or or allow anything bad to happen to her. Now this Bible passage tells us that God is a loving, kind and wise Heavenly Father who will discipline us for our good. It doesn't take much thought to realise that the care of a good father will always mean careful discipline. Just consider children who are never disciplined. Aren't they a disaster? They become spoilt brats and we hate them for it. Children who can't bear it when they don't get their own way. Children who have everything they want and who haven't learned to share their toys with others. Children like that are horrible. And they make life a a misery for everyone else around them. Now, I guess there's only one thing worse than a spoilt child, and that's a grown-up spoilt child. Adults who've been spoilt as children and continue to act as spoilt children. We've all met them. We've probably got one or two of them in our minds as I speak. Adults who can't cope when they don't get their own way. Adults who think the world revolves around them, who've never learnt to put others first, who throw a tantrum when they don't get their own way. A rather sophisticated tantrum, but really that's all it is. They're throwing out their toys out of the pram. People like that are not pleasant to be around. See, it's obvious when we think about it. Parents who don't discipline their children do them no favours at all. What a relief to know that God won't treat us like that. He is a loving and kind Heavenly Father who wants the very best for us. And he knows that failing to discipline his children is not loving and kind. But too many Christians don't think like this. And so too many Christians act like spoiled children whining and moaning every time life doesn't go perfectly smoothly for them. Living as if the world revolves around them. Throwing a theological tantrum when life doesn't work out just as they wanted. Getting angry at God or sulking and not talking to him. And refusing to meet with other Christians when they're upset with God or with others. Sadly, it's behaviour that I see in people who've been Christians for many years. And I can only assume, as Piper says, there's an imbalance of emphasis on the father's forgiving tenderness to the exclusion of the father's forgiving toughness. By the end of our study of Hebrews chapter 12 this morning, my prayer is that some of us will view hardship and suffering quite differently to how we've ever viewed it before. Uh, Before we look at the text Now let me make three clarifying comments. Indeed, let me make one even before I make the three that are on the sheet. And uh, the first one is this. Uh, Please remember, this is week five in a five-week series. Please remember all the things that we've heard in the previous four weeks. Uh, But these are the three comments that I particularly want us to hold on to as we go through. Firstly, God's basis for discipline is not always to punish 
See, we've got to think about what this discipline is and what it isn't. Please do not think that the fatherly discipline of God is always equated to your own particular sinfulness. That, that can't be the case, can it? Because we've seen people who um, at times have, uh, have sinned quite extraordinarily uh, and yet they haven't always suffered uh, as a result. Yes, there are parts of the Bible that link suffering with our sin. The Bible does teach in places that we may suffer as a result of our sin, but that is not always the case. And so we must understand discipline as a bigger thing than punishment. God's discipline is about training. Uh, Secondly, God's purpose in discipline is not to penalise, but to purify. I've been thinking about this as a father this week. If, if, the only, if, if really when I discipline my children it is to try and penalise them, if that's the, the end result, I'm not a very loving father. No, it should be to purify them. It may hurt at the term, time, indeed the Bible says that, but, but it's, that's not the end point. It's not just for punishment, is it? It's to purify. Now we can categorically say that no suffering of any Christian is God's condemnation upon them. No Christian is ever on the receiving end of God's wrath Why can we categorically say that? Romans chapter 8 verse 1 There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, Jesus bore the punishment of God's wrath on the cross. So it would actually be quite wrong, quite wrong and immoral of God to pour out his wrath upon us for Jesus has already borne the punishment and paid the price for our sin. It doesn't need to be paid again. So please, uh, bear that in mind. Christians are, are never being penalised. They are never on the receiving end of God's wrath. But still, God will discipline us to show us how exceedingly evil sin is and to remind us not to take sin lightly. But as God's people are disciplined, his purpose is always to purify us. It is for our good. And the third point of clarification. God may utilise evil to discipline um, his people. I think to explain this, all I need to do is quote uh, Don Carson. In, this is such an excellent book, How Long, O Lord. It's not an easy read, but again, I just want to encourage us to be getting to grips with good theological works. And this is a great book that we've been mentioning every week to encourage people to, to read it. How Long, O Lord. Let me again quote then Don Carson to make this point. It's on the sheet. The quote is on the sheet there. Some of God's means of discipline Discipline, all designed for our good, can simultaneously be be viewed as calamitous evils. For instance, prolonged suffering from chronic illness is certainly not a good thing, yet rightly accepted it can breed patience, teach discipline of prayer, generate compassion for others who suffer, engender some reflection and self-knowledge that knocks out cockiness and the arrogance of condescending impatience. That's... uh, He makes the point without me having to say anything else. Now with those points of clarification in place, please hang on to those. Uh, Let us turn to our our first point from Hebrews 12. First thing is that discipline is a mark of of sonship. Let me read again verses 5 to 8 of Hebrews 12. You've forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you 
as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, then you are illegitimate children. They're not true sons. In verse 5, the writer describes his quotes from Proverbs as, you see it there quite interestingly, a word of encouragement. And the encouragement is this. If you're being disciplined, it's because you are a son of God. Very interesting that often when people go through hard times, they doubt that they are really loved by God. He's saying the opposite. For some of the Hebrew Christians, they were suffering because they were obedient. In chapter 13, verse 3, we see that some of them had been imprisoned, presumably because they were Christian. They were suffering for the gospel. They were suffering because they were genuine Christians. So the writer says, uh, uh, says to them uh, and to the others who haven't yet got to that point, don't avoid hardship at all costs. The Lord uses hardship to discipline you, to train you, to to make you more the person you should be, to stop you from growing up to be an obnoxious, spoiled child. And we can see that in any area of sin. You see, when we come to an area of sin, we often don't want to obey, we don't want to grapple with that sin because we think it's going to be hard for us. He says, no, no, keep grappling with it. Do grapple with it because it might be hard, but hardship is the way the Lord disciplines you and it's for your good. Suffering for the Christian then is not a mark that God has deserted you. But that is often the way people take it. So, so often when people suffer they say to me, where is God in all of this? God feels a million miles away. I feel as if God doesn't love me. It's understandable why we think that way. Remember what we said two weeks ago, that the, the way we really know God's love for us is we look at the cross. There we know God loves us. But here's another key thing. Now, suffering is always tough. Now, this passage makes that point a bit later on. But if you're a Christian, as you suffer, don't conclude that God doesn't love you. Indeed, quite the opposite, verse 8. If you are not disciplined, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Discipline is so much part of God's way in dealing with his children that to live without hardship should make us question our status as children of God. Discipline then is a mark of sonship. Secondly, discipline comes through hardship. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Now again, although we've touched on this slightly, I'll cover it again. Please don't misunderstand the word discipline here. Discipline is about training, refining, purifying. It's not just to be seen as punishment. Oh, it, it is sometimes that. You see, in our house, there are times of discipline that are obviously punishment. Uh, when the children have been bad and need to change their behaviour, they're disciplined. In our house, that means being sent to the naughty set or missing out on something they enjoy. But there are other times when our children suffer not because they've been naughty, just because they live in a cruel world. And those times are times of discipline too, if we think of discipline as training. Now, one of our children came home from school recently in floods of tears because they'd been treated cruelly by someone in the playground. As far as I could tell, for once, this was just for once, this was nothing to do with my child being naughty or irritating or obnoxious. It was just that another child actually had been mean. But once we'd had a cuddle and uh, the tears had stopped, it still gave me an opportunity to, to show this one 
I'm desperately trying not to use the gender so that you can't work out who it is. Um, it gave me an opportunity to show this one how hurtful it is to be cruel to others, even though this one had been on the receiving end of it. And I was able to encourage this one always to be kind to other people. Do you see, in that sense, the suffering they had, it was nothing to do with punishment, but it was an opportunity for training. That's the idea of discipline here. And so, verse 7, we should endure hardship as discipline, whatever hardship it is. I may be suffering just because I live in a cruel, fallen world, but it is an opportunity to be trained in godliness. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. See, often when people suffer, when, when they're tragically bereaved or diagnosed with terminal illness, so often the question is, why me? Again, listen to these very helpful words from, uh, from Don Carson. I've printed them just over the sheet there, over the page. It is the uncertainty of reading what is going on that sometimes breeds pain. Is the particular blow I'm facing God's way of telling me to change something? Or is it a form of discipline to toughen me or soften me or to make me more useful? Or is it part of the heritage of all sons and daughters of Adam who live this side of the parousia, that is the return of Christ, unrelated to discipline, but part of God's mysterious providence in a fallen world? See, I may not know why this hardship has come upon me, but the writer to the Hebrews says, whatever the reason for this hardship, treat it as discipline. That's the point of verse 7. We're to view all hardship as discipline. In the last couple of weeks, we, we've thought a lot about God comforting us through suffering, quite rightly. Uh, we've seen uh, how, uh, as Jesus died on the cross, uh, we see there one who understands every sort of suffering that we suffer. We saw last week how, how God uh, is a God of compassion, the Father of all comfort, who will come alongside us. We are to see that. But now, if we take this on board... Through hardship and suffering, we'll have the picture of our Heavenly Father coming alongside us in our suffering, putting his arm around us, and as he wipes away the tears, saying to us, now look, do you see how you can learn from this? Do you see how, how you can use this for your good? Do you see how you can change? Do you see? That's what's going on here. Let me tell you about Kitty. Kitty. Uh, Kitty uh, was a wonderful Christian woman in, in, the congregation that I, in a congregation that I used to be in. Uh, Kitty had endured huge, great suffering in her life, more than her fair share, we might say. Her son had died early in his 20s. Her husband had gone blind through suffering from uh, diabetes when he was relatively young. Uh, indeed, as he got older, he was really quite a sickly man and completely dependent on Kitty. Life was tough for Kitty. But, you know, I never once heard her complain or grumble. Uh, Kitty endured hardship as discipline. She told me how she learned lessons through the extraordinary suffering that she'd gone through. See, she used it for her good. To change her into a beautiful woman of God. Caroline used to say of, of Kitty, quite often, I, I want to become like her in my old age. Discipline then is a mark of sonship. Discipline comes through hardship and that leads on to the third point that discipline is for our good and leads to holiness. Look at verse 10. 
Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. I was speaking to somebody this week about this sermon and he said to me that some years ago he wrote to his mum to thank her for disciplining him when he was a little boy. Now that he's an adult, you see, he realises it was for his good. When God disciplines us, how much more then can we be sure that it is for our good? You see, verse 10, our fathers disciplined for a little while as they thought best. They were were trying their best, but you can be absolutely sure when God does it, it is for our good. What sort of good could come through this hardship? Well, it's there at the end of verse 10, that we may share in his holiness. I know that really grabs us these days. What what good is holiness for us? Uh, Holiness is not high on the... uh, uh, in the 21st century uh, Western evangelical uh, uh, agenda. I don't think we're particularly bothered about being holy. I hope you will be when you read verse 14. Look what it says. Make every effort to live in peace and with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now that raises the stakes. Holiness is crucial. Without it, we will not see the Lord. Not might not, will not. And as we read on, as we're going to in a moment, we'll see the point. It is this. If we persist in sin, in an unholy lifestyle, we will not be saved. We will not see the Lord. Now please don't misunderstand. Salvation is by grace through faith. We've we've sung that in the children's song. We are saved by trusting Christ alone. However... The Bible says again again and again that the mark of salvation of a saved life is a changed life, a holy life. If we're not living a holy life, we can say till we're blue in the face, oh, I became a Christian on such and such. If you're not living it out, you probably never did become a Christian. That's what this is saying. And so if we are not growing in holiness, then we are declaring ourselves to be unbelievers and we will not see the Lord. Uh, Now see how the writer to the Hebrews develops this thought. How he's saying it's for your good that you are disciplined because it is good for you because you will become holy and I'll show you why holiness is good for you. Look at verse 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. That's his point, you see. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. We can miss the grace of God by becoming bitter, unholy in that sense. We said last week through hardship, we can become better or bitter. When it's bitterness that takes root, people fall away. Uh, Over the years I've met several people who are really anti-God. Not many, but a few who are really anti-God. And if they've uh, allowed me to talk to them, I've discovered that so often those who are really anti-God are anti-God because of a bad experience in the past. I think of one woman whose fiancé died just before they were to be married. What a terrible tragedy to have to cope with in life. It is awful. She never married and as far as I could tell she never recovered from that terrible tragedy and when I met her she had become a, a bitter old lady. She told me she could never follow a God who would allow that sort of thing to happen. You see, for some, tragedy makes them bitter, verse 15, and they miss out on the grace of God. But I've also met people who've who've suffered similarly, who've become better people for it. 
See, when God disciplines us through hardship, he does it for our good, that we may become holy. But if we don't view it in that way, if we don't trust that our Heavenly Father knows what he's doing, we'll become bitter and turn from him and miss out on his grace and we will never see the Lord. See how this is working. The writer gives two further examples of the danger of unholiness. Verse 16. See that no one is sexually immoral. Now sadly, in these last months, it has been brought to my attention that there is serious sexual immorality among us here at Christ Church Forward. As a result, I've had to meet with two men from this congregation about two quite distinct and unrelated issues of sexual immorality. And I have warned them both that they are playing with their salvation. I've told them they are choosing sexual immorality over God. And I've told them that I am worried for their soul. I've told them that if they carry on, they are walking along the broad road to destruction. I am worried that unless they change and show that they have a desire for holiness, they will never see the Lord. And as a leadership, we have talked to them about disciplinary action that will happen if they won't repent. The Lord disciplines us for our good. It's not harsh, it's for their good. It is better to suffer his discipline than to miss out on his grace and never see the Lord, isn't it? If these men will turn from their sexual immorality and, and seek to live with Jesus as Lord, do you see how discipline would have been for their good? It's for our good to suffer. It's better to suffer hardship now than for eternity. And then the writer gives us one more example of the danger of unholiness in verse 16. See, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Do you remember the story of Esau in Genesis chapter 25? He came rushing in after a day's hunting. He was famished. And he sold his birthright, his inheritance, for a tasty stew. That seemed to be the most important thing at the time. I'll, I'll have the stew. Now, at a glance, it seems extraordinary and so far from anything that we would do. It's one of those incidents that we read in the Bible that we find, you know, just almost unbelievable and so easily dismiss it as kind of irrelevant to us. Don't be fooled. I keep meeting people who will sell their eternal inheritance for something that in the grand scheme of things is really quite insignificant. Now, the singer-songwriter Nathan Tasker has written a brilliant song about this very thing. It's called Narrow. Explaining the song, he says this, It is a sobering thing to watch someone trade the eternal things of heaven for the temporary things of this world. Listen to the lyrics of the song. I've again printed them out for you. I must admit this hasn't taken me by surprise when I see my friend get sucked into all of this world's lies. It was only a little decision. After all, he didn't have time and it led him to a promotion but left his first love behind. He said, I'm looking for a better way to pay off my first home and I'm looking for the day I get an office of my own. Well, I must admit, this world often tempts my fallen eyes and I fall in love with all my earthly home provides. I think it's a brilliant description of how easily this happens. Just a little decision, just an agreement to take a promotion because he wanted to pay off his mortgage and because he wanted a bigger office. A bit of pride there. So easy, isn't it, to fall in love with the things of this world and to fall out of love with Jesus. To sell my inheritance, my eternal inheritance, for something as temporary as a promotion, a stew. 
Now as I look around, I see people immersed in their work in a, in a way that harms their walk with the Lord and to the detriment of their family and of their health. And I see those people battling against the hardships that have come upon them because of this decision they've taken. I, they, they can't cope with all the balls in the air of career and family. And it's not a battle they're winning. They're stressed at work, their relationships at home are affected and their work, walk with the Lord is affected. It's not good. Why is life so hard for them? I don't know. But they are to take it as discipline. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. They are to think, is this just not working out because of some decisions I've made and do I need to change those decisions? And isn't that kind of God and good of him and for our good that he will take us through hardship to make us stop and think, have I sold my birthright? Am I like Esau on the road to losing my inheritance? I'd better change while I can because verse 17 is very, very sobering. Esau came to the point where he could not change. I should change my personal circumstances so I can still seek the Lord. I must look for a job that is less demanding. That's what happens. That's what's happening in my life. Now, if that's what happens through hardship, then suffering hardship is a good thing, isn't it? And so do you see that while it's hard, the Lord's discipline is for our good, for our eternal good, to make us holy, for without holiness no one will see the Lord. Now, as a Christian, I've got to start thinking in those categories. As well as all the other things we've said in the last four weeks about suffering, I've got to think in this category when it comes to suffering. How should I view this hardship? What can I learn from this experience? Well, fourthly, we need to say this. Discipline never feels pleasant at the time. Verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Uh, this is such an important point. Even if I believe everything that's already been said, even if I believe that discipline is a mark of my being a child of God, even if I believe that hardship will train me, even if I believe that suffering is for my good to make me holy, even if I believe all of that, it doesn't make it feel good at the time. It is still hard. And so Don Carson writes, all the correct theology in the world will not make a spanking stingless or make a brutal round of toughening up, exercise, toughening up exercises fun. Suffering still hurts. But while, verse 11, no dis discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful, later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Uh, my dad only smacked me once or twice, as far as I can remember. But as he smacked me, or just before, I do remember him saying this, at least on one of those two occasions, you'll thank me one day for doing this. <laughs> at the time, I thought you must be joking. But he's right. Now I do thank him. I'm pleased he disciplined me. It was for my good. Well, that's how Christians can respond to our loving Heavenly Father. Because, verse 11, discipline produces righteousness and peace in my life. 
See, there are things I've learned, things I'll never forget because I suffered. Times when I blew it and suffered the consequences, I've learned those lessons and I won't blow it again in that same way. Times when I was struggling and it humbled me. Times when my suffering made me stop and think, I'm the better for it. To quote Don Carson again, there is a certain kind of maturity that can be attained only through the discipline of suffering. Many people can say they've I can say just that, indeed, one of them being Jerry Sitzer. I've quoted from this book, I think, every week in the last five. Uh, again, if you've not been here, you won't know uh, necessarily the background of this book. Jerry Sitzer uh, lost uh, in one car accident his mother, his wife, and one of his daughters. Uh, the whole family were in the car. Those three died. Uh, the accident was caused by a drunk driver. He says this at the end of his book, towards the end. Never have I felt as much pain as I have in the last three years, yet never have I experienced as much pleasure in simply being alive and living an ordinary life. Never have I felt so broken, yet never have I been so whole. Never have I been so aware of my weakness and vulnerability, yet never have I been so content and felt so strong. Never has my soul been more dead, yet never has my soul been more alive. Above all, I've become aware of the power of God's grace and my need for it. My soul has grown because it has been awakened to the goodness and love of God.